The reading comes from Psalm 135, verses 5 to 18. I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn of men and animals. He sent his signs and wonders into your midst, O Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants. He struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Zion, king of the Amorites, Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan. And he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his people, Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, through all generations. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but they cannot see. They have ears but they cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Psalm 135. It's a psalm that celebrates the greatness of God compared with the gods of other nations. For the author of the psalm, the God of Israel is not just the best God, he is the only God. He's greater than all the other gods. He's completely independent and does whatever he pleases. Whereas other nations might have different gods in charge of different aspects of nature, the Lord, he's the one in charge of all creation. And he demonstrates his ultimate superiority over the gods of the other nations by defeating them in battle and conquering their land. Those who trust in idols are deaf, dumb, blind and dead, just like the images they've made with their hands. In short... If you worship any other god but the Lord, you must be really stupid. It's a psalm that praises the Lord and adopts a sharp, polemical tone with respect to other religions as it does so. And it's a psalm that summons the servants of the Lord to praise him and concludes by calling on the houses of Israel, Aaron and Levi to praise him. All who fear the Lord in Zion should praise him. It's it's whipping up worship calling on people to praise the Lord because he's immeasurably superior to all the other gods. It's a psalm addressed to God's people. And maybe, just maybe, it could have been written with quite such a sharp polemical tone because the people addressed in the psalm, God's people, were sometimes tempted actually to worship these other gods. Certainly when you look at the people's track record in the Old Testament, they didn't do a very good job of being focused on the one God whom they believed to be the Lord. Does the psalmist denigrate other religions because in some way their attractiveness is perceived as something of a threat? Does the psalm feel some 
subconscious need to bolster the faith of God's people by running down other religions in comparison. There's certainly no in-depth attempt to understand what other people believe. And there may just be a nagging doubt as to whether a readiness to rubbish other people's faith also entails a degree of superficiality about an understanding of one's own. Is it enough simply to be able to say, well, my God is better than yours and that's the only thing that matters without really understanding what you believe, let alone what other people believe? Brian McLaren, always a stimulating and worthwhile author, has written a book, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha and Muhammad Cross the Road? It's in the church library, but this is the copy, so don't go and look for it straight after the service. He says that Christianity has adopted a spectrum of attitudes towards other religions. At one end of the spectrum, you have a conservative faith with a strong Christian identity that is hostile towards other faiths. And at the other end of the spectrum, you have a kind of liberal faith with a pretty weak sense of its own identity, but a benevolent posture towards other faiths. Psalm 135 is over here. My God is great, yours is rubbish. At the other end is the view that veers towards saying, well, my religion and your religion, actually, they're all pretty much the same. And we'll all get to heaven in the end, won't we? As long as we get on well with each other. One perspective emphasises difference in as much as the differences between the faiths can be used to establish the superiority of what I believe. At the other end of the spectrum is such a weak understanding of faith, we're not really sure about what we believe or how what we believe differs from what anybody else believes. McLaren argues for a third approach in his book, which he says combines a robust knowledge of what I believe and I'm sure of, together with a very benevolent attitude towards what other people believe and their religion and their faith. Let's look at a clip in which he talks about this book and what it has to say. My name is Brian McLaren, and the book is called Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Muhammad Cross the Road? Christian Identity in a Multi-Faith World. I started my career as a college English teacher, and then I became a pastor and was a pastor in the same church, just outside of Washington, D.C., for 24 years. Uh, During that time, I began writing, and now I'm a writer and speaker and networker and activist full-time. I think we Christians know how to do two things well. We know how to have a strong Christian identity that is hostile toward other faiths. And we know how to have a more tolerant identity that often results from weakening our Christian identity. So we have a a strong and hostile and a weak and tolerant. And what I think we're all seeking is how do we have a strong and benevolent uh, Christian identity that's the, uh, that's the quest of this book. I think all of us in the years since September 11, 2001 have felt that we have to deal with the seeds of hostility in each religion. Like a lot of people, when I began researching the book, I assumed that the problem that we have is, is a problem of differences. And if we could reduce the amount of difference, then we would increase the amount of harmony. But I became convinced that actually the opposite is true. Our problem isn't as much our differences as it is something that all religions hold in common. And that is a tendency to build a strong identity of of us 
around hostility to them. One of the questions that comes to mind uh, on the subject of interfaith hostility is so uh, what do we have to overcome for that to change? And as I grappled with that question, I became convinced that we have four primary challenges that we have to face. First is the historical challenge. We've got to learn about our history, learn the reasons why that uh, the Christian gospel has so often been mixed with a message of conquest and hostility and opposition. Secondly, we have a doctrinal challenge. When we understand that historical context of domination and conflict, we then come to realize that many of our doctrines have been expressed as part of these larger social conflicts and, and historical uh, struggles. And that gives us the challenge then of rediscovering our doctrines, not as weapons of conflict, but as healing teachings, as the word doctrine really suggests. Third is the liturgical challenge. Because a lot of the things that we do when we gather as Christians, from our songs to our sermons to baptism and the Eucharist, could be great resources for healing and reconciliation, but they also uh, can be and have been uh, reinforcers of an us-them hostile oppositional mindset. When we deal with the historical, the doctrinal, and the liturgical challenge, then we can deal with the missional challenge how we go out into the world. I think um, many Christians would identify with me and my religious background, uh, where we, we had a very strong, passionate, committed Christian identity. That's why I think more and more of us are, are realizing uh, that we have to go to the core of our faith and in some ways rediscover our uniqueness and our distinctives as Christians, but rediscover them in ways that send us to people of other faiths with motivation for respect and hospitality and warmth and neighborliness. In, in one sense, knowing who it is that we follow, we shouldn't be surprised that that would be the case. But in another sense, looking at our history and looking at a lot of the rhetoric that we see happen around us every day, we know that we've got some, some work to do to get to that better place. I've been telling people in this book, I'm not trying to recruit readers, I'm really trying to recruit activists. I, I hope that people will be inspired to start mending the wounds that we've caused through uncautious rhetoric, through bad leadership for many of our religious and political leaders, uh, that, that we can start to mend those wounds by crossing the road to uh, make contact with people who are different from us, that, that we would develop the instinct of moving toward the other. It's all good stuff. I think Steve endorsed the book when he was here with us from North Africa the other week. Um, good reinterpretations of things like creation, original sin, election, the Trinity, Christology, the Holy Spirit, healing teachings, as the way he puts it. Some people would hesitate, though, about his view of mission. He says mission is, is less about witnessing to other religions and more about working with them to establish a common good, which is how he talks about the kingdom of God. Salvation is about being saved from the disastrous effects of misguided, distorted and dysfunctional religion. Um, and so he says, you know, a shared commitment to mission, working alongside people of other faiths, 
won't make everybody Christian, but it will make everybody more Christ-like. And actually, arguably, is that not an important thing? So he asks us to imagine the Pope, the Dalai Lama, a tele-evangelist, a Muslim imam, a leading rabbi, and an Orthodox patriarch, working side by side to serve meals in a refugee camp, distributing mosquito nets, digging wells, assisting dentists in providing dental care to a poor village. How do you respond to that picture? Do you want to say, Amen, yes, that would be brilliant. Or do you want to say, well, that's all right as far as it goes, but. And if there is a but, what is the nature of the but? What is, what is your hesitation about that? What about, for example, Jesus' commission to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all his commandments and baptising them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit? How does that square with what McLaren says? Does that put us under some kind of obligation to bring adherents of other religions over to our side of the fence? He would say, actually, you know, we're not called to make other people like us. We're called to work with other people and together to follow Jesus. That would be his understanding of mission. And if we're more bothered about converting others to our point of view than we are about cooperating with them to bring about the kingdom of God, are we getting our priorities wrong, given the level of pain and suffering in the world? Let's be honest, one of the principal reasons why Christians are persecuted in so many parts of the world is because they try and convert people of other faiths to Christianity. So should we restrict our evangelistic efforts just to reach those who don't practice any religion at all? Or does Jesus place us under an obligation to share our faith with others who already have a different faith of their own. And if we do look to share our faith with them, how much are we prepared to accord them the respect of really trying to understand the ins and outs of what they believe rather than just trying to score points and say that we're better than you, we're right and you're wrong? What about people of other religions? Is it possible for non-Christians to be saved? This, again, is another question wrapped up in the idea of other faiths. There is a spectrum of views, again, on this question. There are those who say that because Jesus said, look, no one comes to the Father but by me, anyone who hasn't formally put their trust in Christ as Lord and Saviour is necessarily lost. That is one end of the spectrum. At the other end, you have people like Rob Bell, his book is in the library as well, who argues that ultimately God never stops trying to draw people to himself. You're trying to say, he says, that God loves us when we're alive and suddenly stops loving us when we die? Perhaps after death he continues to try and draw people to himself, giving them the opportunity of turning to him and finding salvation. And so eventually, because he has an eternity to do it in, love will win. Everybody eventually will be drawn across into salvation. Then there are those kind of in the middle who argue it's possible for people to be saved through what Jesus has done on the cross for them, even if they've not heard it or embraced it themselves. C.S. Lewis was one such. There are people in other religions who are led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it, he said. I think that every prayer which is sincerely made even to a false god is accepted by the true God and that Christ saves many who don't think they know him for he is dimly present in the good side of the inferior teachers that they follow. 
Some would say, well, perhaps everyone gets a chance to respond to Christ at the point of dying if they've not had a chance in their lifetime. And we might kind of step back from that and say, well, show me in Scripture where it says that. And actually, you know, one or two obscure references might point in that direction, but it's not explicit. And we might say, actually, I don't want to go beyond the clear testimony of Scripture. We are engaging in speculation here. And yet these are the conclusions which some godly people feel that they've been guided and directed towards as they've been led by the Spirit of God. Different perspectives on this question. And how much common ground is there between Christianity and other religions anyway? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the same God as as the Jewish Hashem? What about the Muslim Allah? What about other religions who are quite happy to include our God alongside their gods and say, well, actually, it doesn't matter. We'll just include yours in terms of what we believe. If there is one true God, does that mean that all religions apart from Christianity just capture a different facet of what he's really like? So we see one aspect of God and the Jews see another and the Muslims another and the Hindus another and the Buddhists another. If so, what gives Christianity an edge over other religions, if if we want to say we have an edge? Or is it a question we've never really explored because when it comes to worshipping God in the UK, Christianity is the most easily accessible and therefore the default option. People have said to me, well, you're a Christian because you're born in England. If you were in India, you'd be a Hindu. If you were somewhere else, you'd be a Muslim. Is, Is that just how it works? And the Bible talks about other spiritual beings, talks about demons, principalities and powers. If people are worshipping other gods, are they worshipping the same God as us or are they worshipping some of these other spiritual beings instead? Certainly in 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear that he associates the idols worshipped in local temple with demonic forces and says you can't do that. You can't join in with what other people are doing there because you are engaging with demonic powers when you do so. He would not have been a fan of interfaith worship in any way, shape or form. Are we pushed in the direction of saying, well, if you worship another religion, then you're worshipping a demon. You're not worshipping the true God. In his book, Gods That Fail, Vinith Ramachandra has a different take on how we become enslaved to demons when we surrender our hearts to idols. Because for him, an idol is some aspect of the created order that takes the place of the creator. So an idol can be a mental concept as well as a physical object. So when human beings give any aspect of God's creation, sexuality, all the work of their hands, science, the nation state, market mechanisms, when they worship these things in place of the creator, they call up invisible forces that eventually dominate them. So we worship something other apart from God, we become enslaved to whatever it is we worship in God's place. It becomes an idol that dominates and controls us, naturally releases spiritual forces into our lives. Miroslav Volf has pondered how in the Balkans conflict, decent people, helpful neighbours, ended up enjoying a campaign of plundering and burning, rape and torture of people they'd been living alongside for years beforehand. How did that come about? Carl Jung remarked on how Hitler was clearly a man possessed and how he was enable, how he was able to infect an entire nation and set a sequence of events in motion that inevitably rolled towards perdition. This is where the real demonic power of idolatry is found, where we worship an ideology. When even we as Christians place something other than Jesus Christ at the very centre of our faith, 
then we become capable of perpetrating all kinds of cruel and vicious deeds to be done in the name of Jesus. So idolatry is not a feature of other religions opposed to Christianity, but it's a real spiritual danger that lurks whenever we make something other than God the be-all and end-all of our lives. We say, this is actually the most important thing, and it's not God, and it's not Jesus, that becomes an idolatrous thing and destructive consequences can follow from that. So a course of action is not inherently good just because it's done in Jesus' name, nor is it inherently bad if it's done in the name of some other religion. But any religion, including ours, has the capacity to be corrupted into an instrument of evil when it's used to support a pernicious ideology. That's why the declaration, Jesus is Lord, has to be an absolute one. As soon as I pledge allegiance to some other earthly authority in Jesus' name and subordinate Jesus to some other power, I am heading for trouble. So we can't say that our religion is the right one, others are idolatrous. Actually, the capacity for us to engage in idolatry is there as well. We need to keep Christ at the centre of what we believe. So what is so special about Jesus? Why, if we went into the supermarket and all the religions were on the shelves, would we pick this one? rather than any of the other ones that are there. There are a number of reasons. And I say this without wishing to denigrate any other religion at all. But I would say, firstly, Jesus' teaching is undeniably of an exceptionally high moral standard. You won't find it bettered anywhere else. And he lived out what he taught in practice, all the way to the cross. We believe that Jesus is God incarnate. In Jesus' Son, God himself has come down to be with us, to be one of us. Our religion is not about us reaching out to get to God. It's about God himself coming down to rescue and save us. And because Jesus is God as a human being, he is the best image of God that we will ever get. And as well, it is about God himself taking upon himself our sin. So that Jesus' death means that there is love and grace and acceptance and forgiveness for the least deserving among us. Grace is a distinctive feature of the Christian faith. Uniquely as well, we celebrate his resurrection from the dead. Jesus is alive. It's the core of what we believe and that sets him apart from from other faith leaders. And we proclaim with confidence that because he is alive, we will live for eternity with him as well. And our confidence in eternal life is not based on how well we do in terms of leading a moral life. It's a confidence that's based directly on what he has done for us, securing our salvation through his death and resurrection. Then there's that complicated doctrine of the Trinity. One God made up of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Phenomenally difficult to understand but it explains how God is love. And the loving relationship between God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are the very essence of what God is about, about how God has included us within his family and about how he looks for us to live as people who are made in his image. And the other reason I hope I would choose to be a Christian is because it works. There's no need actually to 
to put down what other people believe. You just need to know what you believe and know it well and know how amazing it is. Because if you understand this faith, you will know it's no bad thing to say that Jesus is Lord. And for that to be the primary basis for our worship of God, our work in the world, and our witness to others, whoever they may be. Let's pray. Lord, we live in an increasingly plural world. Those of us who've been around for a long time know that, you know, Britain is no longer an overtly Christian country. And coming to church on a Sunday is no longer really part of our culture. People believe in all kinds of different things and many people don't believe in anything at all. Lord, as people who say that we believe, help us to understand what it is we believe. Why it matters. The difference it makes. Give us not just a confidence in what we believe, but give us a confidence in you, the one in whom we believe. And help us to combine that love of you, our God and Saviour, with a love of our neighbour that shows respect and also seeks to point the way to following Jesus as we follow Jesus with our lives. Jesus, be the centre of what we believe, of how we live, of who we are. We ask this in your name. Amen.